Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, brought to you by Future Frogmen, a nonprofit organization working to protect the ocean. I'm Richard Hyman, the president and founder of Future Frogmen and the show's host. Today's episode introduces Dr. Colleen Bielitz of Southern Connecticut State University in New Haven, Connecticut. We wanted to speak with Colleen because she shares our values and our objective of transdisciplinary experiential learning. She's an accomplished education leader and a disruptive innovator and is passionate about social justice, gender equality, and resolving social problems in sustainable and efficient ways, including ocean ecosystems. For more information about Future Frogmen, please check out our website at futurefrogmen.org and look for us on social media at Future Frogmen. Now, as we like to say, let's get into it. Colleen, welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for joining us. Uh, It's exciting what's uh, been happening with uh, Southern Connecticut State University, where where you work. Uh, I wanted to give a little bit of background about that, and uh, then, of course, uh, dig into some details and talk about uh, what what you've been up to. But uh, last spring, in in this year, 2020, uh, I, I was asked to judge a Connecticut State Blue Economy Competition. And this featured uh, some short video pitches, elevator pitches, if you will, from uh, college and university students across the state. And I was really impressed with Southern Connecticut State University students. Uh, I'll call it Southern from from this point on in the conversation. Uh, They were really great. uh, And uh, I asked who their professor was, and I I learned of uh, Dr. Patrick Heidkamp at Southern and I, I contacted Patrick and uh, got permission to speak with the students and invited these five students to uh, participate on a panel we did last June for World Oceans Week. And uh, we, we kind of had some fun with it. Uh, it was kind of like a shark tank. Uh, I called it frog tank just for fun since we're <laughs> future frogmen. And uh, they all did a, a great job, particularly considering how early stage these businesses were. You know, they really had not even written their business plans yet, but they were well organized and, and did a, a fantastic job. We actually have the videos of those up on our website, and uh, we even repurposed the uh, audio of those that are in the uh, podcast section of our uh, our website, futurefrogmen.org. But I stayed in touch with, uh, with Patrick over the summer, and we met this fall. And in fact, uh, a few, only a few weeks ago, did a podcast with, with Patrick, Dr. Heidkamp, and uh, it was very insightful. And uh, Southern also, a lot of things are going on. You recently collaborated with some other schools and hosted what you called the Coastal Transitions Conference. So you and I met briefly on uh, on a Zoom during that virtual conference. And uh, this whole series of events which started last spring, has led us now to seriously explore some even greater synergies, which uh, I'm excited about. And uh, soon we're going to be announcing a new relationship. In the coming weeks, in the month of December 2020, we'll be announcing that. And uh, I'm also pleased to announce that I've invited you to become the new host of the Blue Earth Podcast. And you have accepted. (laughs) So this is very exciting. Our episode here will be our 30th episode, and it's just been so much fun doing it. And I think it'll be great to have have you join as our new host uh, starting in January 
uh, likely January 4th. Monday will be the first posting. And uh, therefore, during the next few weeks, we're going to be sharing some some, uh, repurposed audio from the vault, from the archive. And we'll be getting ready for you to take over uh, January 4th. Um, So as our producer, John, says, let's get into it, Colleen. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, again, uh, so great to have you. And uh, to get started, can you tell us about yourself and your your background? Oh, sure, I could. Um, Well, I've been uh, in a number of positions at a number of different higher ed institutions for the past three decades, actually, um, focusing on strategic initiatives, uh, creative entrepreneurship. Um, I'm sometimes considered a disruptive innovator because I can really come in and mix things up. Um, I'm a blue economy and tech evangelist, but my primary focus has always been the United Nations uh, 17 Sustainable Development Goals, which I feel provide a roadmap for progress that is sustainable and leaves no one behind. So uh, I'm an advocate of social good. I try to promote social good. Um, I've been on uh, a launch team to launch uh, the the Massachusetts Digital Games Institute when I was uh, working up in Worcester. Um, Also launched the first Unisocial Business Center in the United States. And uh, I have, my family is here in Connecticut. So I decided to put roots here uh, in Connecticut with um, my uh, wife and my six-year-old son because it was tough driving up to Massachusetts. And uh, now I'm at, at Southern and we've come up with a number of uh, new initiatives uh, all around you know, the future of the world and how can we you know, be forward facing and work towards um, sustainability in a number of different ways. And one of those was through the blue economy, which if people listening, I'm sure probably know what the blue economy is, but if you don't, it's the, sa- the sustainable use of the ocean for economic growth, improved li- livelihoods and jobs, and most importantly, ocean ecosystem health. So when people think of the blue economy, they'll usually think of the first couple of things, which are like fisheries or maritime transport and tourism. But it's so much more than that. It's also about renewable energy. It's about waste management. And it's also about climate change. So um, one of the projects that I've only been at Southern uh, since 2018. And uh, the funny thing I will tell you is when I first got to Southern, uh, one of the first things I did was I was on a four-person team that traveled to Kuala Lumpur. And we launched an international consortium there to enhance social good and advanced sustainable development uh, with the main focus being the UN 17 sustainable development goals. So our founding partners were also the University of Technology Mara, which is in Malaysia, uh, Shanghai Normal University in China and Liverpool John Moores University, which is in the UK. And you were just talking about our uh, conference that we just had uh, on the blue economy. Uh, Liverpool John Moores is one of our partners that we hosted this coastal transitions conference. We had over 14 countries there. And uh, it was really just an eye-opening uh, experience to hear all of the different research uh, that's happening in the blue economy. And then also gives us a picture of the things that we need to do as well. But uh, I, I have a, a wide variety of a background, but my main focus has always been the UN development goals. Hmm. Yeah, you, you do have a, a, a 
a varied background, very very diverse and interesting. It's hard to know where to start. I, I love, <laughs> I, you started by uh, saying you're a disruptive innovator. You've been known to be that, and uh, that that is a, a wonderful term I've heard before, and I think that's a great attribute that you have. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe I could ask you to dive into that a little bit more. When, when you say that, what, what, what do you mean, and what are some examples of how, how you've been able to uh, be a disruptive innovator? Yeah, well, I you know I started at the Art Institute of Philadelphia, um, where I was actually working in admissions, and I was very involved with some of our programs. We had multimedia and web design at that time. We were using programs like 3D Studio Max and Maya, and I kind of looked at those programs and thought, gee, how could we just not use these for gaming, but use them for other purposes? And had created this uh, interactive presentation that I would take out to high schools. And it wasn't to sell the institution itself. It was about giving students the idea of different fields that they could get into that they wouldn't necessarily think about. And I, you know, the first thing I saw, though, when I would go out on the road was this great disparity in education itself. So I would, I'd go to a high school that cost, you know, millions of dollars, brand new, Students had, um, you know, new uh, Macs to use, you know, Mac computers, and uh, they had like ceramics classes and jewelry making. And then I would travel down the road seven miles to like an inner city school, and then I they had just an old, uh, you know, one room space for these students to use with like broken bits of chalk and some scraps of paper. And I was like, what a disparity in education. You know, these are art classes at two different schools, but one has this high tech and everything you can imagine at these, you know, students' fingertips, which I'm sure they take for granted because they think all schools offered that. And then I go to another school that just has like a couple of sketch pads, you know, like I said, some broken pencils. And I, I was like, that's, it seems so unfair. It seemed so inequitable. And I had gone on to, uh, I, I was the director of graduate and professional studies at a institution, and then I learned about the difference between traditional education and then uh, andragogy, which people still refer to pedagogy, and they even talk about it when they're talking about adult learners, but adults don't learn the same way as children do, so you have to teach them in a different way, and andragogy is one of those ways. And uh, it was back in 2003, uh, I saw everything that University of Phoenix was doing and how they were grabbing the share of students. And I started having uh, my graduate professors offer hybrid classes and some online classes. And boy, did I get pushback back then. You know, no one wanted to give up, you know, as they called it, the sage on the stage. Like, oh, I can't do this, you know, on an online platform. And I was like, you definitely can. And the funny thing is once uh, I brought in different tools for them to use and kind of trained our professors, when they made the switch to doing some hybrid, they actually really loved it because it just gave them, it almost excited them because they were trying to find new ways to teach about the subjects that they learned so much. So that was a big disruption back in, uh, I want to say, you know, 2003, 2004. And I've kind of done that all the way up. I bring tech into the classroom. And I left higher ed for a bit uh, to run a virtual charter school for a number of years. I was the executive director of Pennsylvania Virtual Charter School. And we had about a little over 1,800 students. And it grew to be over 4,000 students when I was there. 
because people were disenfranchised with the education that their students were getting. And in a virtual environment, uh, we had many students that were on the Asperger spectrum that uh, didn't do well in a traditional classroom setting, but excelled in this type of setting because it was more neurodiverse. Also, students that wanted to go at a quicker pace than a traditional classroom. You know, most students are you're kind of stuck there. You're in the middle, you know, teachers trying to teach to the smarter students and to the students that take a little bit longer to catch on. And it's just very hard to do that, you know, for every, you can't be all things to everyone. And yet we try to do that in the traditional school system. So I loved going into the virtual world and seeing how education be, could be delivered in a different way, but in a way that was just as enriching. And then I got, uh, I was, uh, I, was asked to come up to Massachusetts and I was a Dean of Graduate and Professional Studies at an institution up in Worcester, Mass. And I pretty much disrupted everything that they were doing. Um, like they were still pulling TVs with like VCR tapes. And I was like, oh no, no, no. Like we are so far beyond that. If I could have like last year, I was teaching kindergartners with iPads. I'm not bringing in, you know, old style tools to my adult students. And uh, I brought in um, actually a couple of gaming companies uh, from McGraw Hill, and they had, for example, a political game where uh, students could be uh, a, a politician, so to speak, and they had to work across the aisle and get bills passed and kind of got to understand, like, they had to please the people in Washington. They also had to please the people at home. And how did they make that work? And that was something that would have normally not brought into an adult classroom, but the adult students loved it because they actually got a better understanding because they sat in the seat of the politician, which never happens. So those are just a couple of examples of like how I've been a little bit disruptive. Um, you know, I made sure that all of our classes were online. So if we ever had to shut down because of snow, like classes never stopped. Instead, you would just take your class, you know, online instead. Um, I've been a you know fan of not just seat time in the classroom, but it's the learning that happens in the classroom that's really important. So um, yeah, I've, I've got a long range of experience that we call it pre-K to gray, because mm. I've <laughs> every type of learner I have touched along my career. Well, you have said a number of things that resonate. Um, one is you just said learning, and it's funny because uh, at Future Frogmen we we say learning even though we promote education the team we're not uh we're not professional educators so we we've been reluctant to say education per se but we do say learning because that that's a one of the key ingredients of of what we aspire to do your discussion about the virtual world uh certainly in 2020 with covid a lot of uh traditional teaching has been forcibly disrupted uh, I, I've uh, I found it very exciting. I mean, we were using Zoom here in Future Frogmen a year before COVID, and it was like second nature for us because we've students around the nation. But uh, I, I think a, a number of teachers and professors had some major adjusting to do using the virtual teaching method. Would you agree? Oh, I, no, I definitely would agree. And uh, we've taken it even further than that. Um, I mean, there's a there's a plenty of new platforms that are out there. Uh, Alt Space, which is one that uh, Microsoft hosts for free, or there's uh, Engage, 
which is my latest favorite uh, virtual environment that I put on my Oculus Quest and I can meet with people from all over the world and we're sitting in a room together, although it's, you know, the avatars of ourself, but it gives you that feel of being face to face. And I feel that the classrooms of the future will incorporate more of that, uh, you know, than they are right now. I mean, this is a whole world that I feel like business is going to change and higher, uh, all of education is going to change eventually where we're going to be doing more of these virtual type of meetings, but there's even platforms that are developing that give it more of that physical presence feel instead of even just like Zoom meetings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, what I've loved this year, despite the horrific pandemic, uh, it, it has been exciting to be able to connect to people around the world uh, more readily because a lot of conferences that would have normally been in person, uh, for example, the UN World Oceans Day and World Oceans Week in New York City would probably not have been virtual. And instead it was. And uh, even your uh, Coastal Transitions Conference might have been physical, uh, not uh, virtual. And, uh, and perhaps going forward, we'll see a, a hybrid approach to some of these. But it's been exciting to be able to connect with people, uh, you know, around the world in a very relatively easy manner. I, I loved what you said before. Uh, uh, what was it, K to Gray? Was that what you said? <laughs> yeah, pre-K to Gray. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's another interesting thing about your background. Um, been looking at that entire range of education. I find that uh, to be very interesting. Um, and then, of course, you have a strong interest in STEM. You've been a STEM advocate and working in STEM. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, well, like I said, you know, uh, I, I want to get and keep underrepresented groups into the STEM fields. And I've done a lot. I When I have been at other institutions uh, at another uh, college up in Massachusetts, I partnered with uh, Monty Tech High School and offered like free coding camp for you know, underrepresented students who wouldn't or, you know, would not have had the opportunity because Sometimes coding camps are offered uh, for free, but it's rare. Usually it's a company that's offering them and you have to pay a fee. So I want to make sure that people who can't pay the fee get to experience it. I also, uh, back in October 2016, I ran a girl hackathon up in Boston. And again, that was uh, for young girls because girls usually aren't steered towards computer science for some reason. And yet they're, you know, quite adept at it and they create some interesting uh, games and I partnered with a company called Hopscotch that's out in New York. So when the students left, they had games that they could then take back and show their friends, which was really exciting. Um, and every institution that I've been at, I've tried to offer some type of a uh, coding camp or computer tech for underrepresented groups. The last one, I, when I was at Southern, I had uh, uh, partnered with um, Halberton uh, at District, and my uh, computer science chair, Dr. Lisa Lancor, and I uh, worked with Halberton and ran a uh, camp for, uh, it was young girls, uh, residents of New Haven that were wanted to get into coding but didn't have any experience in coding. They were able to take this program during the summer. So it was a two-week camp, and then we finished it with a panel of uh, chief technology officers from various companies, uh, 
that were all women. So we had representatives from Travelers and uh, Sikorsky, which is now Lockheed Martin. But it was nice to show these young women that had taken this coding camp, these role models then that they could see of what they could become. And I feel that uh, young girls need to see that more and more as well. So, yep, I try to focus on all underrepresented groups, um, but I, I definitely have a focus on getting young girls into computer science because we need their voices heard as well. It's uh, It's been really interesting experience for me the last several years on Future Frogmen. Started it with one young lady. She was a junior in high school at that time. Now she's a junior in college studying environmental science four years later. <laughs> and uh, she was our first member and uh, we quickly added about three other young ladies back then and uh, have grown significantly since then, but we are still predominantly females. And mm -hmm. uh, we've had a couple of uh, funny conversations where I've asked them, uh, almost pleaded with them, hey, don't you want to change the name, Future Frogman? <laughs> and they, they uh, basically said, no, we like it, Richard. We don't have any problem with it. Uh, it was uh, one or two uh, older folks who were influencing me to change it, but I went with... Uh, with our, uh, with our team, I, I listen to them. And I, I've been so impressed by all the young people, uh, but most of our team are females. And uh, boy, they're just so, so smart. And uh, they just blow my mind with uh, the work they're doing uh, that. So yep. now let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, what you do at, at Southern. You are uh, Associate VP uh, for Strategic Initiatives and Outreach and mm -hmm. is in the Department of Academic Affairs. Can you Tell us more about that. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, the provost was hired probably about a year before me, and then he felt that he needed to hire somebody to kind of give guidance and development and implementation of strategic initiatives related to both new and ongoing initiatives, um, outreach and external partnerships at the university. And it, the thing is, universities get, we're kind of used to working in silos and there needs to be more of that transdisciplinary work of bringing different departments together because that's how the world is coming together. It's no longer just like a chemistry uh, major or a bio, or, you know, biology major and technology. Now it's biotech. So we need to look at where the future is going and then combine some of the work that's going on at the university. And uh, I've been able to do that and kind of, to be strategic is to be forward focused. So one of the first things I had done when I got there was uh, I launched a fully funded blockchain academy with, within six months of being at the institution. And I did that by working with um, DAP devs. Uh, I have a friend of mine, uh, Don, that ran that and we created this you know, blockchain boot camp. Uh, but also, what are the other things we need? Well, data science is another growing area that we need to expand on. We also have a biopath initiative that we are now breaking uh, into something even bigger. Um, we're doing a biopath skills institute to generate the biotech workforce of the future. So we're partnering with the city of New Haven uh, BioCT on this initiative. And it's an industry-driven curriculum. I mean, we're tapping into what do the biotech companies need in Connecticut uh, to thrive? What's the workforce that, they, that they're looking for? 
And then the next thing that I saw was, you know, the uh, blue economy. I mean, we're right off of the Long Island Sound. We're in a beautiful area. We're along the coast. I mean, Connecticut has all of the coastline there. And what are we doing to, you know, kind of be good stewards of the Long Island Sound? And um, I had partnered with uh, Patrick because he and I both have this passion for the sustainable goals. And it drew us together, this, you know, new thing that we could do together. What could we do to move New Haven, especially Connecticut, towards that sustainable path? And that's when we came up with the concept for Project Blue, and we went to, straight to work into making it happen. And it's unbelievable. It was just a year ago, and we received funding uh, from CT Next, and we, we hit the ground running. And our initial focus, uh, as you know, was on the Long Island Sound uh, kelp seaweed industry, because we figured we'd use that as a catalyst. We had partners such as Green Wave that grows uh, the kelp in uh, the, you know, Long Island Sound. And we wanted to use specifically though a transdisciplinary approach because we wanted to leverage expertise from academia, from business, from the government sector, from civil society. I mean, we need all of those players working together because it's more than just the economy, it's about spaces and relationships and relationships to each other, relationships to the resources that we have. So um, my job is basically to be that forward thinking person that sees, you know, what are these interesting things that we're doing and then how can we pull it all together? We do great work. Uh, we have a center for excellence for autism studies here. We have a great center on sustainability at Southern. I mean, the stuff that Susie Uminski does in that department to help Southern be sustainable and cut our energy usage. And I mean, uh, the solar panel initiative, just the, the money that we're saving and the energy that we're saving, it's been unbelievable. And now we're working for, uh, on a new center for uh, you know, social justice and change. But it's bringing those different areas that are all working in the same discipline. You know, they all have the same research area, but they're all doing their own thing. How do we pull all of those together? And that's what we're doing. And I have to say the provost launched this and it asked about creating these cluster hires. So that's people from different disciplines, but have that same subject matter. And we were fortunate enough that the blue economy happens to be one of those. So we have, you know, uh, economists, sociologists, you know, um, uh, you know, Patrick's group in geography. Uh, we have uh, biology, you know, all of those researchers in the blue economy coming together now working uh, as a cluster. And I'm hoping that next year, because we just did the cluster hires this fall, you know, we'll be able to create even more than we have already uh, in regards to Project Blue and the Blue Economy. Now, when you say cluster in that sense, mm -hmm. that is something different from some of the ocean clusters that are being formed around the world? Yep, it's yeah. uh, the cluster, you know, uh, as you know, uh, the great thing about Project Blue was we had uh, a couple of boot camps. We had a, you know, Be Knowledge where we taught people what the blue economy was about, uh, the relationship to the UN Sustainable Goals and its relevance to their lives and careers. And then we gave them, uh, gave them an assessment after they went through the Be Knowledge boot camp and they got a badge and then that led to the Be Innovation where we were teaching uh, students, you know, how to create businesses in the blue economy. And then that moved into innovation teams and uh, Patrick and uh, Michaela worked this summer 
to help our students create these. And like you said, you were there on the panel to judge them. So we were able to launch a number of businesses and one is the Long Island Sound Ocean Cluster. So that's different than the cluster hire. Our cluster hire is within the university itself, bringing people together that have that same uh, lens of research on the blue economy, but they're all from different disciplines. Whereas like the Long Island Sound Ocean Cluster, which we're launching, uh, brings in uh, different businesses under the blue economy umbrella. So we're focusing on promoting ocean stewardship, conservation, economic opportunities, social inclusion, improved livelihoods, and ensuring environmental protection all the way. So that's really what the new um, Long Island Sound Ocean Cluster will be, but it's different than the university's cluster hire. So another cluster hire, just to give you an idea, is um, on health and human services. But so we're looking at people in computer science that look at uh, how to use data science for health and human services, uh, people in uh, research areas, and then also people on the uh, social science end, like how do behaviors drive health? So we kind of take all those different disciplines and put them together. And that's, that's basically the cluster hire uh, around the particular topic at the university. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I figured it was uh, different and, and uh, <laughs> the way, you know, the, the cluster hiring at the university, but I, I, it was interesting to hear you articulate that. Uh, it sounds like a, uh, a great strategy of the university to be uh, forming those clusters and hiring in that fashion. And it sounds like a, a fantastic, uh, uh, difficult, but fun job. That you have. <laughs> Yeah, indeed, yeah, because, you know, everybody wants their own work, but um, that's the difference between multidisciplinary, where everybody kind of brings their own idea to the table, and then transdisciplinary, where it's like, we all bring our expertise, but we have one focus, and the transdisciplinary is what I'm trying to get everybody to focus on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's... It's funny because uh, when we started the Future Frogmen, for some reason, I was always thinking of interdisciplinary. And a lot of people I was speaking with were saying multidisciplinary. And then when I met Patrick, he was saying <laughs> transdisciplinary. Yeah. And uh, I honestly had not heard anyone else say that un until you did as well as um, our most recent uh, podcast. We uh, had a great conversation with uh, Dr. Samantha Sadlecki at uh, UConn in Avery Point, and she was talking about transdisciplinary uh, work that they're doing. So it seems to be a very uh, up-and-coming, yeah. uh, logical approach. It, it, it ties into uh, design thinking and basically that human-centered approach. So to be human-centered, you have to have that transdisciplinary lens. Now, you said something else about uh, the blue economy. Uh, you talked about uh, uh, the number of dimensions and that it, one of the dimensions is uh, end, end of, uh, of, of uh, the forming new Long Island Sound Ocean Cluster, which you just mentioned. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, part of that is environmental protection. It's... Uh, just so, just so our audience understands, we say economy. It and, and you you alluded before that it relates to the uh, the communities, the employment, 
and as well as the environmental protection. It's not just about, in fact, I would say it's not at all about exploiting the natural environment for uh, kelp or whatever natural resources might be cultivated, but it's a, a sustainable way to uh, to derive value, yet uh, probably better protect the, the natural environment. Can you uh, maybe dig a little deeper into that for us? Sure. It's about using that, like, like I said, the uh, we're starting with the Long Island Sound, but, uh, you know, we want to uh, develop this project and these innovation teams to, um, you know, focus on climate action and life below water because they're so important to uh, the world itself. I, I mean, the ocean is vital to uh, Earth. And I have a um, first-year research experience class that I teach, and I'm um, Patrick is actually, I teach my class, and then he has a class right after mine in critical thinking, and we focused on the UN goals and for their research projects. You know, many of my students are focusing on uh, the Long Island Sound, you know, as in where they live and they look at plastics and, you know, the harm that's coming and, uh, you know, are trying to think about like, what are ways that we could mitigate this? How can we change uh, the, you know, um, the waste management, so to speak, so that we're not polluting the sound because the sound is going to be even more important for us as far as, um, you know, uh, I want to say transport and fisheries and, you know, even just going, you know, the family tradition of going to the beach or to the shore uh, during the summer. I, I mean, if we keep on the path that we're going, uh, you don't have to worry about your grandchildren because, you know, they won't have the same experience that you've had because of all the damage that we've done. So the number one thing is to mitigate that damage to create and foster um, a younger generation that understands and appreciates the ocean and the Long Island Sound and works to clean it up and to take care of it because the only way for our life to, I, I want to say for our survival basically, is to you know, take care of the oceans and take care of us. Yeah, it, it's funny, and I, I agree with you. Um, it's funny when I look back, however, when, when I was a boy, going to the beach on Long Island Sound. Mm. Uh, the water was very likely dirtier back then. Uh, it, it, there has have been, I'd say, great improvements, yet there are other, many other threats that didn't even exist then. Like, for example, mm. you mentioned plastic. You know, mm -hmm. I don't think plastic really hardly existed back then. And, uh, uh, and, and you know we've got the whole, a lot of threats associated with climate change, um, so it's. Uh, and by the way, for for folks that are not familiar with Long Island Sound, we've talked about this mm -hmm. on several podcasts. But it is actually a very precious estuary uh, off the coast of uh, Connecticut. Uh, to the east is Long Island, and uh, to the west is the Connecticut coastline. Uh, to the north and south, it basically flows into the Atlantic Ocean. So it's uh, it's a very precious body of water that uh, uh, 
you know, it, it, it depends how you want to look at it, but it, it's definitely threatened uh, if mm -hmm. we don't do the right things as we go forward. And uh, it can be a wonderful resource for, uh, as you said, Colleen, uh, from things such as recreation um, to uh, uh, harvesting and, and business. It, it, interesting, the students that presented last spring um, were talking about uh, kelp kombucha and there's a variety of foods and, and beverages and animal feed and potentially bioplastics, cosmetics mm -hmm. that can all be derived from from seaweed, from kelp, right. uh, sugar kelp grown here on Long Island Sound. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you said, this this is probably the first of several uh, different products, if you will, that can be uh, derived in the in the blue economy. And it, I think you, if we can just talk about oceans and the and the state of the ocean. I mean, you bring up the good point. Like, the, we need to create some type of a bioplastic. Uh, and kelp, we've actually been able to do that through kelp. There's companies that have bioplastics that are made out of kelp. And I think it was in England, they had these little water packets for, uh, it was some kind of a marathon that runners would run and they'd be handed these kelp packets so they could squeeze them and get the water and then, you know, drop it and it would, you know, decompose just like a leaf. We need to have more of that natural system. I mean, the ocean provides food for more than 3 billion people on the earth, I mean, people don't think about the ocean, but it produces half the oxygen that we breathe. And then it sucks in all the carbon dioxide emissions, roughly a quarter of the carbon dioxide emissions are taken in by the oceans. And that's why it's heating up, but it's essential to us sustaining life on earth. Um, and, you know, we ha had our coastal transitions conference and in the past decade, we've seen this steep change in the volume and quality of scientific research and that's on all aspects of the environment, biology, the ecosystem functioning and human interactions with the ocean. And I have to say we're in big trouble. It's scary. And I wrote a piece on Earth Day that's on our Project Blue homepage that Mother Earth is trying to desperately wake us up, you know, and only a few of us are hearing her message loud and clear. And I feel like we live in this world of illusion that the climate crisis is someone else's problem, but it's not, it's ours. And we need to take care of it because from the research that I see, you know, there's a deadly trio is what they're calling it. Um, and that's acidification, warming, and the deoxygenation. And for the listeners that don't know about uh, like de just deoxygenation, uh, a number of the areas in our coastal waters that receive too little oxygen to support marine life, they're called dead zones and they're increasing. We have 400, you know, worldwide in 166 in the U.S. waters, and they're just uh, growing, which is scary because of pollution and burning of fossil fuels. These large you know, uh, patches of the ocean that used to sustain life now don't have life in them. And, you know, uh, plastics, if we talk about plastics, uh, it was funny that you mentioned that, uh, Richard, because in the 1950s, it really was the ramp up of plastics. And According to an uh, industrial ecologist, uh, Roland Geyer, 90.5% of all plastics made since 1950 are still on the planet Earth. And only about 9% of plastics uh, worldwide are recycled each year. And about 8 million metric tons are dumped into the oceans. It's so hard to grasp, but it's like, 
you know, a dump a New York dump truck every minute, just dumping their waste into the ocean. And what do we think is going to happen? You know, and that's kind of what, uh, when I had put, done my post, um, because COVID was the earth basically shutting the world down. I mean, it shut us down. And what happened when we kind of changed our behavior, like CO2 levels dropped, places that have been polluted, the waters became clearer, like in Venice. I mean, it was like a miraculous thing. I, I feel like the earth is just trying to wake up humanity, like see the big picture here because you know, you're in trouble. And I'm hoping that more and more people heed the call. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, another source of the problem, I, I would say, is what Captain Cousteau used to be rather focused on, the population growth, mm -hmm. uh, which has certainly exploded since, uh, since the days when he was talking that way in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Um, you know, we, if we continue to grow, um, okay, but we have to do the right things. We have to be smart. Mm -hmm in order to sustain our quality of life and life on, on earth. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. you, you commented on, uh, well, first of all, plastic itself. Uh, I, I think, I don't know the, f the numbers off the top of my head, but, uh, it has grown exponentially, even in the last say 10 to 20 years, uh, big oil has yeah. been, you know, pushing it hard and, you know, being fairly innovative with the packaging, but it's innovative as far as the more and more they can package in plastic, but uh, that which uses oil, but it's, it's mm -hmm. not innovative as far as uh, sustainability. Um, if, if we could, you know, we, that, that's, that's a, a fight that's ongoing. Yeah, I, I, it's funny you mentioned that uh, with the plastics because one of my students even today in her presentation uh, for her research had noted that there's 400 million plastic, you know, like grocery shopping bags, bags just in Connecticut alone each year, 400 million. And then they end up in streams and in, you know, oceans and, and we need to we need to get a handle on that. It can't just be like, oh, we'll charge you 10 cents at the grocery store for buying a plastic bag, we need to eliminate them or come up with a bioplastic. I mean, before 1950s, people didn't use plastics, you know, like you used to get your, you know, milk in glass bottles. And I mean, we need things that can be recycled and that, that are sustainable, as you know. Yeah. And, it, and you were talking about the human population. Um, it's going to be as high as 12 billion people by 2100. And from the research that I've read, we would need uh, two continents the size of India to feed us. And then the only other place we can go is our oceans. So, I mean, we have to take care of our ocean, you know, with the, um, you know, the growth that's coming our way. It's not like you can't see it. You know, all you have to do is, you know, look at demographics. I think I, I, I'm going to take a, a moment and read something that I, I believe you you said, Colleen, and some of the homework I did here, hmm. uh, I think this, uh, this ties into what we're talking about here. Uh, quote, our, our work will highlight the close linkages between ocean health, climate change, and the well-being of the state. This goes beyond viewing the ocean economy solely 
as a mechanism for economic growth, we want to create sustainable models based on the circular economy. Mm -hmm. Similar to the green economy, our blue economy hub will focus on being inclusive while acting as good stewards of our earth with a focus on social equity, while mm -hmm. also meaningfully reducing environmental threats and ecological scarcities. That's really well said, uh, Colleen. I think that reinforces a lot of what we've been talking about today. Maybe yeah. uh, before I uh, lose you, I could ask you to comment <laughs> on uh, uh, a couple other things related to Project Blue. Mm. I, th I think you alluded to this, but uh, you have uh, plans for a Project Blue hub, I believe, in New Haven, Connecticut. And uh, I guess COVID put a, a bit of a delay on mm -hmm. that. but. What's what's your uh, what's your plan there? Uh, yeah, so the hub was a physical space that we uh, had planned to create for students. Again, this kind of transdisciplinary approach. Even our students that uh, we created these student teams, they were they weren't business students. These were students from all other disciplines that came together to form these, um, you know, blue economy initiative businesses and um so the physical space we're looking to build but COVID, you know we had to put a hold on everything and obviously COVID has affected uh, our budget as well uh, i mean the university's budget overall um but once we get uh you know if and when we get back uh you know together this space was meant to bring students from all of the disciplines and uh, you know computer science as well because data is very important um, and what we wanted to do was create these businesses where we can break the cycle of um, you know take make and trash which is kind of what uh, the human cycle is you know you just take you know take it out of the ground you make it and then you just throw it away it's a disposable society everything else on earth is circular like what you know goes back into the ground nourishes the ground once it dies we need to kind of have that we need to get that mindset mindset and that's the kind of businesses that we want to create out of the project blue hub and we are pulling in other institutions we work with yukon we work with gateway as well pulling those into the blue economy initiatives and when i say transdisciplinary i mean i the hub will if there are people that have ideas and they want to come in and they want to create something, we want to help them create that business that will get us where we need to be to have a safe and sustainable Long Island Sound and create businesses of that nature as well. So the, the hub will happen. It just, uh, with COVID, we weren't able to, you know, launch the hub itself. Yeah, of course, uh, a setback, but uh, still, a great plan. Uh, it would be great there in New Haven, uh, right on Long Island Sound. And and mm -hmm. what about uh, at, at Southern? Uh, you have a new Worth Center for Coastal and Marine Studies. Can you tell us something about that? Yeah. So the uh, Worth Center does a lot of research on the impacts of you know that man has on the environment. So we have. A, a lot of research that goes into uh, even microbeads that people don't think about, but it's in their face, you know, different types of face washes and 
those are just little plastic beads, but they go out into the waterways. They get through uh, the filtration systems, which you know filter out the bigger particles, but not the smaller ones. Um, Vince Breslin, you know, Dr. Vince Breslin also has done a lot of research on um, you know microfiber. So when you get your fleece jacket and things like that that are made out of these recycled materials, bits and pieces of those break off and go into the waterways as well. And then the fish eat those, and then you eat the fish, and it's like a, a cycle. And eating, you know, ingesting plastics is having an effect on humans as well. So uh, we see a lot of times fertility issues in people, but, you know, a lot of this has to do with what we're ingesting and putting into ourselves that we really don't even think about. Or if you like heat food in a, you know, microwavable container, you know, what, what are you consuming after that, you know, from the plastics? So the Worth Center looks at, uh, you know, environmental impacts. It looks at the coastline and, you know, after storms come in and damage the coastline, you know, what's the best way to rebuild that coastline that does the least amount of damage to, you know, everything that lives in water that we don't think about, like when we just, you know, dredge or when we pump sand, you know, living creatures, you know, are impacted. And, you know, I'll, I'll ask the listeners, you know, next time you go to the beach, if you sit on the shoreline and then just let the water, you know, come around your feet and really take a look at all of the life that lives in just that small amount of water. I mean, all of these things are impacted by man and by our practices. And these are the things that we really have to protect because they're important, you know, to the environment and the ecosystem, which then impacts us. Yeah, it's, uh, as you're speaking, I'm thinking of multiple conversations we've had multiple podcasts that relate to many things that, that you, you just said there uh, uh, microplastics and effect on the human body and uh, I would encourage our listeners to uh, check our uh, our library and see what uh, might appeal to them um, and you're right just to just take a, a small amount of water in Long Island Sound and you'd be mm -hmm. fascinated with what's what's living in there yeah. Uh, Colleen, it, it's uh, before we uh, before we end. Uh, I just want to say it, it's really interesting to to speak with you because you bring a, a different uh, dimension to uh, a lot of the conversations we've had. And as a professional educator, it, it's been really interesting learning at least a little bit about your background and some of the great work you've done. And uh, I'm really excited to hear uh, what you do with the Blue Earth podcast as our new host <laughs> come January. Uh, I'm sure you're going to have some great guests and uh, some wonderful conversations. So I'll be listening and, and supporting you. And uh, I hope uh, all, all of our listeners uh, to this podcast today will do the same. And I'm sure we'll have many more, many new. Before we close, though, uh, you've already alluded to this a little bit, but uh, maybe I could ask you, uh, first of all, if there are any other comments you'd like to make, please, please uh, share them. Mm -hmm. And and uh, I wanted to associate with that. I wanted to ask about your thoughts on the state of the ocean and its future and what our listeners can do mm -hmm. to help the ocean. Yep. But I 
Well, thank you, Richard. I, I appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure to be on the show, and I'm looking forward to hosting the podcasts in the future. And um, you've done a great job with, you know, the first season. We've had so many interesting guests that I've had the pleasure of listening to. I don't want people to feel that there is nothing that they can do and that we have lost all hope because there are still plenty of things that we can do. We can have an impact on, you know, sometimes when you look at the grand scale, it seems like, well, I can't make a difference on the world, but you can make a difference on your world. And then those tiny impacts then have a ripple effect. And the uh, uh, World Wildlife Federation, I believe, had laid out a plan that if we did things like phase out fossil fuels and replace them with renewables, which we know that we can do, uh, I mean, there's a lot of uh, plans for different types of wind turbines and solar energy. So we, need, we know we need to move to renewables and we can definitely do that. And the more people that think about that and the more people that buy into it, uh, like even with uh, cars, you know, electric vehicles or hybrid powered vehicles, all of those make an impact on the environment. We need efficient food production is the next thing. And one of the things that you can do is just reduce your consumption of meat, as simple as that sounds. So instead of having, you know, meat seven days a week, if you could have meat four days a week or three days a week, because meat is one of the things, funny enough, that, you know, uh, the greenhouse gases, you know, are increased because of meat production. And we just will not have uh, the landmass to create all of the meat that would be needed to feed all of the people. And if we could just manage that and uh, create more efficient food production so that there's less waste, that's another thing that could be done. Um, manage our oceans is another. Uh, so a global network of no fish zones, because research has shown that if there is an area that has been overfished, if you just give it time, eventually it will replenish itself. So uh, no fish zones, a treaty on international waters, if we could stop the dumping and the polluting of the oceans, that's another thing that kind of goes into managing our oceans. And then, the, you know, another thing is uh, they mentioned rewild, which is to keep hold of it the wild populations that we still have, you know, the wild lands that we still have to preserve them. I mean, we can reuse the space that we're already using, but don't go into the spots that are still, you know, wild, like leave those to be what they are. That's another area. I think the most important thing is to open our eyes to this moment in history, which is showing us a path forward. We just need to open our eyes to that path. Um, to think of ourselves on a planetary scale. I teach my students in um, my uh, women in STEM course in our first year research experience what the overview effect is because there's not an astronaut really that has gone out, uh, you know, above the earth and floated above the earth that hasn't been touched by the beauty and the fragility of the earth. And they see that paper thin, you know, atmosphere and they, once they see it, and many say that they have wept because they get it, that there's this beautiful blue and green ball of life that has no boundaries. There are no countries. There are no borders. It's just the earth itself. You know, 
And I get emotional thinking about it because we need to protect it. There is no boundary here. We are all travelers on this planet that is going through this black void. And yet here we are full of life and such a variety of life, such beauty on this earth, all of the different areas. So that overview effect, I haven't been up in space, but I have in the virtual world. I have to say, I've put my VR headset and I have seen it and it is impactful if you think about it that way. And um, I think the last thing is to embrace the challenge that we face. Um, I know like SpaceX and a lot of money is going into all of these different things like, oh, let's get us to Mars, let's do this. I think if we put all of our efforts into saving the earth that we do have, because there is no planet B, like, I don't want to live on Mars. I want to live on this beautiful planet that we have, and I want to keep it this way. So I think uh, that's something else that can be done. And if you just want a small challenge, listeners, just look at the trash that you create in a week's time and think about if you didn't have a place to go dump that. Like, what would you do with that trash? Like, what if you had to keep all of your trash? Would that change the way that you like buy things? Like, would you look to compost more? Because if you had to suddenly keep all of your trash, I, I think it'd be eye-opening to the trash that you, you create. And you know, it, when you put it in that trash bin and you think, oh, it just goes and it's recycled, it isn't. You know, most of it goes into a landfill and you're, it'll last for over 400 years and it'll go into the environment and affect it. And that's something to think about. I'm John Sherburn, the show's producer, and I want to say thank you for listening to another episode of the Blue Earth Podcast. I was sadly away this week, so I couldn't be involved in the recording of the intro, but I'd be remiss if I wasn't here for at least the outro. This episode is a special episode as it marks the beginning of something new and the end of something we've all come to know and love. This will be the last episode with our host Richard, unfortunately, and while we're very excited for our new host coming in January... It's going to be tough to let him go. So I want to say thank you personally to Richard for getting this whole thing set up, for working with me over the course of the last six, eight months to get this thing off the ground. And uh, I can't thank you enough. The work you've been doing is incredible. And I'm excited to see where the show goes when we pick it back up in January. So we're going to be taking the month of December off to get the new host acclimated, to get some good guests lined up and for the holidays. So I want to say I hope everyone has a nice holiday season. We can't wait to see you in January. Thank you to Richard. Thank you to the audience. Remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador.